Welcome to the Beyond Barriers podcast. When women lead, share performance and profits go up 50%. Results are more powerful when everyone is empowered. This is the insight that brought the four founders of Beyond Barriers together. We came from a diverse set of leadership backgrounds with a common goal to close the gender gap at work and expand economic opportunities for everyone. Tune in each week as one of us interviews inspiring guests who share stories and cutting edge strategies that will help you learn what helped them go further faster. I'm Monica, your host for today's episode. In a world where productivity and fulfillment seem elusive, one woman took an unconventional path to unlocking their secrets. From academia to neuroscience, Dr. Britt Andreata delved deep into the mysteries of the brain, uncovering a remarkable twist that would change everything. From her early days as a university program director to her former role as chief learning officer at lynda.com, now LinkedIn Learning, She has continuously pushed the boundaries of what is possible in the field of education. Her latest book, Wired to Become, delves into the fascinating connection between happiness and purpose, offering practical insights for individuals seeking fulfillment in their work. As an esteemed author, speaker, and consultant, Dr. Andreata's brain-based training methods have revolutionized the way companies and individuals approach productivity and personal growth. Get ready to be inspired as Dr. Andreata shares her wealth of knowledge and experience on leveraging brain science for enhanced productivity. Visit GoBeyondBarriers.com where you'll find show notes and links to all the resources in this episode, including the best way to get in touch with Dr. Andreata. Welcome, Dr. Andreata. Thank you so much for joining us on the Beyond Barriers podcast. We are thrilled to have you on. And I personally, secretly, um, am one of those learning admirers or learning geeks who've always been following you because you have an amazing way of kind of breaking down sometimes the really confusing ideas around, you know, philosophies and best practices, etc. And um, I remember many years ago watching your uh, one of your online learnings on the neuroscience of learning. And it was information I'd already known, I'd already studied before, but the way that you presented it was like it unlocked some other pieces that I'd never connected the dots. And so ever since then, I've been a super fan. So I'm thrilled to have you here uh, because we've taken a lot of these learning theories and the neuroscience behind it to really help our programming and with with the women and the individuals that come through our program to really get them to not just know what they need to do, but how to actually do it. How do you apply the learning? So thrilled to have you here. So without further ado, I want to dive right in and just um, give you the floor and get you to start talking about a little bit about your story and what you've learned in your journey and how you have landed where you are now. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, my my first career was right out of college. I ended up uh, staying at the university I'd gone to school and I earned a master's degree and then I got a job working, running first year programs and summer orientation and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was really intrigued by research. So while working, I went back and got a PhD and really was studying kind of that intersection of leadership and learning. Um, what uh, All great leaders are great learners and learning helps you develop great leadership skills. So I nice. kind of studied that intersection. I was there for 20 years and really loved it, developed a lot of programs that are used by other campuses. Um, But at some point, I felt like I was kind of done with that particular part of my career. So I jumped over 
to be the chief learning officer at lynda.com, which is now mm-hmm. LinkedIn Learning. Right. And that was a really fun part of my career, learning how to be on camera and learning how to um, talk to a piece of glass like you're talking to a group of people. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and not shift your weight too much so you're not bouncing around in the frame. And that's really where I think I honed my skills in terms of synthesizing information. And mm-hmm. that's also where my, my neuroscience fascination started was... Mm-hmm. I, I started studying how the brain learned because I wanted to be better at my craft. Mm-hmm. And I was there for several years. We went through the LinkedIn acquisition and then I was ready to jump out on my own. So now I'm an author, speaker, and a consultant. And mm-hmm. a lot of companies around the world use my brain-based training for rolling out in their organizations. So I, I love what I get to do. And the journey has been super fun. <laughs> I know. And and sometimes I'm, I'm really jealous. I'm like, oh, I wish I could live parallel lives with you. Now, let's talk a little bit about, you know, you've you have written a lot of books and, and your books, you know, all of your books are really great in where you're diving, di- you know, diving in and really helping people understand how we're biologically wired or like getting us to understand what it is, you know, why we do what we do. Um, and so you've written the book, Wired to Grow, Wired to Resist, Wired to Connect, but your most recent book is Wired to Become, which I think is fascinating because we get this question a lot when we're trying to help women define their unique value proposition and what they're passionate about and, you know, finding purpose in their work and like finding really meaningful work. They get really confused, right? Where it's just like, how do you how do you differentiate between happiness and purpose? Because sometimes my passions don't really align with work, et cetera. So can you talk to us a little bit about like what prompted you to write Wired for, for to become at this time? Um, and then let's dive into that second piece of the differentiation between happiness and purpose. Great question. You know, and and I started writing it right before the pandemic. And then I paused because I was in the middle of kid and Zoom school and, you know, (laughs) how to wipe down the groceries and all of that. Right. Um, But one of the things I started seeing, because I continue to consult with the organizations that I work with, was that we were seeing kind of the same issues bubble up, the great resignation, this real shift in how people were perceiving work and what they wanted out of work. So I dove back into it last year. And I'm glad I waited because I think Mm -hmm. it's really clear. The evidence is really clear. We are changed by the pandemic. It was Mm -hmm. a, it was a global traumatic event. Um, We have all faced grief. We've all faced our mortality. We've all questioned, what do I want to be doing with my life? Yes. And so it was great to bring forth some new research and some of the studies I was looking at literally happened in the pandemic. So we could see real time some changes in people's attitudes and beliefs and all of that. So um, I think it's a very timely book. You know, if you mm-hmm. find yourself in this question, it, you're you're right in there with everyone else around the world. But I really wrote it as both, it's, it's kind of part science, like here's the research and what we know about us as humans. And mm-hmm. it's part workbook, like it's really like a journaling activity, because as right. I introduce concepts, I really kind of put it back to each person, like, here's a few questions to reflect on, because mm-hmm. we ended up looking at happiness and purpose, and I'll get into that in a minute. Mm-hmm. And also what makes meaningful work? Yes. And how do we each create and define that for ourselves? So I encourage everyone to read it. It it was really fun to write. And I also got 26 um, purpose stories from people all around the world, kind of sharing their own journey Mm -hmm. to finding purpose in their lives. So I always think when you can read someone else's story, it can give you some good information. 
In terms of happiness versus purpose, I mean, the ancient scholars kind of identified that there were two types of well-being. Mm-hmm. Happiness or pleasure is known as hedonic well-being. And it really is that immediate moment that you get that fleeting sense of joy, yes. from maybe uh-huh. eating a good piece of chocolate cake or <laughs> playing with a friend or something. Uh-huh. And, and that's important. You know, that is um, self-enhancing. It is part of our well-being. But the other type is eudaimonic well-being. And this comes from striving toward meaning, having a sense of purpose, uh, self-realization, you know, becoming your best self. Mm-hmm. And this is much more long-term. Mm-hmm. It's not always fun in the moment, but it leads to a deeper sense of fulfillment or satisfaction. And mm-hmm. it is always focused on others. So happiness mm-hmm. is self-focused. Purpose is always other-focused. So in, in that sense, it's self-transcending. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and what's really interesting is the brain science, uh, they show up in the brain in totally different regions. So we know that we even experience them neurologically as different things. And would you say that, you know, a lot of the times we do get this idea of like the, there's no such thing as work-life balance, right? And people needing to integrate work and life. Um, and we talk a little bit about the the happiness and purpose, but can you talk a little bit about like the the finding purpose or meaning in work? What were what are some of those questions or prompts that you get people to, you know, that you ask them to really think about? Because we do tell them very similar to what you said, you have to put pen to paper and you do have to gift yourself the time to do that self-reflection. But what have you found helps kind of maybe be the catalyst to help someone start really thinking about finding meaning in that work? Yeah. So the two things that I share with people in the book, one is this idea of kind of there's three ways that we frame meaning. One is the meaning of work, which is how you perceive the overall concept of work. And this was really much, very much shaped by your parents and your teachers and how they talked about work, right? Is right, it a means right. to the end? Is it drudgery? Are you always being ripped off? Is it a place to express yourself? All of that. And I definitely think women and marginalized communities have a have a different experience with that, right? In terms of of the messages they receive. Mm-hmm. Then there's meaning in work, which is how meaningful work is to you specifically. And we tend mm-hmm. to stay in careers or industries or job frames that are similar. Mm-hmm. Um, once we kind of find like, I love teaching people, right? And I love researching. So all of my careers and jobs have those golden threads. Mm-hmm. And then there's meaning at work, which is more narrowly defined as the context of this specific job at this particular organization. Mm -hmm. So I've had careers that I've loved, but then ended up hating them at a particular job because the boss that I was under just crushed myself. (laughs) Right, exactly. Um, So part of, uh, so so when I was reading that in the research, I was like, oh, that's really helpful because when something's not right, it kind of helps you tease out which part of this is not right. You know, am I I living with a framework that doesn't fit? Am I, have I not found my right lane or Mm -hmm. am I just in the wrong place under the wrong person? Right. Mm, Yes. I think that's an important distinction. And then another chapter in the book I share there's several researchers that have studied meaningful work. And so I share four or five models. Mm-hmm. And so I explain the model and I have a diagram of the model. And then there's a few journaling questions because each of them kind of tease out another piece that can be useful as we think mm-hmm. about how we each define meaning. The The model that I think is really interesting and came up in the pandemic a lot is this idea that 
we each, and this is personal to each of us, we mm-hmm. each have a need for a certain amount of purpose or meaningful work. Mm-hmm. And then there's the supply that we get in our job. And if the supply is less than what we need, we've got apathy, boredom, you know, right. it's not right. <laughs> but if we have too much, and this is what happened to healthcare workers, healthcare mm-hmm. workers used to be in the right lane, the, the amount of meaning and the amount of supply in their mm-hmm. daily work at healthcare organizations was pretty imbalanced. And then we went into the pandemic and they went into oh, high yes. overload. Mm-hmm. So when you've got too much meaning for the amount that you want, you go into burnout, a lot of distress sometimes moral injury, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So again, that's a great question for each of us to think about, which is what's my right amount? Mm-hmm. You know, some people really need a lot of it and they're going to be tackling some pretty intense issues and working in different types of organizations. Some of us need a little bit of it, but you want to find that your job gives you kind of the right zone of supply. That makes total sense. And and I think the analogy you gave about healthcare workers and pandemic and how it was pretty balanced, but then you get that overload or influx. I mean, that's I visually I can can see that, right? Where then all of a sudden it leads to burnout. Yeah. Um and and so I can it, you mentioned in the book that there, you know, when we're talking about purpose, is it is what you're talking about a little bit, you also introduce paradoxes with purpose. Yeah. Can you know what are some of those common paradoxes? Yeah, so it's interesting. The the research kind of highlighted that there's these paradoxes. So one of them is, you know, each of us, our our definition of purpose and meaning is deeply personal. What yours is for you is going to be different than what mine is for me. And sometimes it even changes over our lifetime. So on one hand, it's incredibly personal. But the paradox is that it's totally shaped and controlled by others. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're, we're shaped by the beliefs of people during our young adult years and our childhood years. And then even if you know, you have clarity about yourself, your boss controls a lot of how much you get to live that on a daily basis or the executives at organization, right? Yes. There's a lot that's outside of our control. Even when you work for yourself, like I do now, I have more control than when I worked for others. There's still elements of it you know, that I can't control what's happening in the market, what's happening with clients. So that's one of the paradoxes. Um, Another one of that paradoxes um, is this ratio that we just talked about. Mm -hmm. It kind of went under this, I kept seeing the phrase, the dark side of purpose. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of research that shows when people are really hooked into their purpose, one of the challenges is boundary management, that mm, it's yes. just hard to go home, especially if you're working on an issue like childhood abuse or saving mm. lives or something. Right. I feel like if I take time away, people are going to get hurt. Um, oftentimes, people struggle with having no boundary management. Sometimes those careers or those industries then take advantage of that. Nonprofit sector is a perfect example where then they don't pay people enough mm, because they yes. they get so much meaning from their work. Mm-hmm. And there's also a toll on relationships. So people who have that intense focus on meaning oftentimes struggle with their particularly romantic or intimate relationships or mm-hmm. parental relationships because they just aren't home investing in the time and in the relationship. So those were some of them. The last one is that ebb and flows over time. So (laughs) when you find your purpose, you're like, yay, this is it. And then it's not always awesome, right? It ebbs Mm -hmm. and flows over time, how we feel about it flows over time. And so it's not always like once you find your North Star, you're good to go forever. Right. It's going to change. 
I love that. And and we do share that with, you know, um, all of our participants that go through our program are kind of, we call them our, our beyonders, right? Of um, there are going to be milestones and there's chapters in your career that you're going to have to reassess the clarity and reassess to make sure you're still on track to the North Star or pivot if if you if you have to. Um, one of the things I wanted to kind of hone in on is one, one area that we really focus on is being that future ready leader and being agile and being prepared to constantly change. Um, and we know, and especially, you know, your old, one of your older books, the, the, you know, wired to resist how sometimes we don't change as quickly as we need to. And we really are trying to help, you know, shift the mindset of, how do you disrupt yourself before you get disrupted and kind of learn to forecast and see the wave that's coming and ride the wave opposed to getting crushed by it? Can you talk a little bit just very briefly on what you discovered of really how, how, how do, what is the best way for someone to, to thrive through change? Because all the digital disruption we saw some significant disruptions during COVID, right? When all of a sudden everybody's working from home and working dynamics changed. What 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 would you share there? Yeah, that's a great question. So so there's it's a good news, bad news thing. So some of the news is that humans are biologically wired to resist change. It's just how we are wired because the way the brain and the amygdala is always scanning for danger, its first sign of danger is some change in the environment. So our very mm-hmm. orientation to survival is change is potentially bad until I have more information. Right. So there's that. We are wired to survive, you know, food, water, shelter, and belong, which is our need for meaningful community. And mm-hmm. oftentimes change, particularly change at work, where we don't have control over it, messes with those things. Mm. It may get in the way of me potentially performing well and getting that raise where I can count on <laughs> food, water, shelter, right? My mm-hmm. paycheck is mm-hmm. how I buy those things. Or maybe they reorg us and now I'm not working with my favorite coworkers and I'm working with some people that don't float my boat, right? So mm-hmm. um, change at work oftentimes can trigger a lot of survival or or reactionary stuff because it's messing with our world mm-hmm. and humans do like to control what we can and we want more of the good things and less of the bad things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but with that said, change is the one constant. Like we also are hugely adaptive. Yes. So part of it is to just be a little gentle with yourself when a lot of change is coming at you. Um, it is stressful. So I think about what are the self-care things you can do, right? Making sure you're getting good sleep, eating healthy food. What do we typically do? We stay up late and we eat sugar, right? So we <laughs> yes. want to lean into like healthy things and acknowledge that our body needs a little bit more support. Um Whenever we can frame what we could possibly learn, because our our natural instinct is to look at change of what could go bad. What could I possibly lose? This is our survival mechanism trying to protect us. But when we start to embrace change, we switch to what could I learn? What could I gain? What could be possible? Mm -hmm. If we can do that intentionally with ourselves, um, Mm -hmm. it can help us make that transition. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, each of us does have kind of a comfort level with change. So entrepreneurs, for example, are notoriously super comfortable with change and drive a lot of change. Folks who pick really slow moving sectors that are very concrete 
tend to not like change, right? right. They want uh-huh. slow change or change that's really meaningful. So the other thing is also honor who you are. And mm-hmm. if you're if you're one of the slow changers, don't try an entrepreneurial lifestyle. It will drive you crazy and vice versa. Right. Part of it is also knowing yourself and kind of honoring what kind of industry or career is going to give you that right. Again, we kind of get mm-hmm. back to the combination of yeah. too much, too little, what's your right, what what's your right zone? Those would be some highlights that I would share. Oh, thank you for thank you for sharing that. And that actually makes, you know, quite a bit of of sense of understanding like it's okay to resist change a little bit, but shifting that mindset instead of like what would I lose, but like what could I gain? What could I learn? Is that whole you know, instead of looking at it through jade colored glasses, let's look at it through rose colored glasses and see how that all pans out. Um, I, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I want to add one more thing, which is um, in all areas of our life, if you're going to do one thing for yourself, play with mindfulness. The mm. research on mindfulness practices is phenomenal. And what they find is that people who are consistent, whether it's meditation or yoga or, you know, mindful walking, whatever your mm. mindfulness practice is, People who engage in even as little as five minutes a day, but they're consistent, their baseline of stress is lower than non-mindful folks. When an event happens, they don't get as agitated. So their peak is lower than other people who get quite Mm -hmm. stressed. Mm -hmm. Then they recover a lot faster back to baseline where it takes the other folks a while to get back down. So there's lots of benefits. And the best thing about mindfulness is it's teaching you kind of to take that observance stance. So instead Mm -hmm. of freaking out, you're observing yourself having those feelings. Mm -hmm. And it just gives you more space and time to ride that wave. So I would say if you're going to invest in one, one thing, and now that with the apps on our phones and stuff, it's really easy. Start playing with mindfulness. Just know it's not about achieving some, you know, moment where you hear angels sing. sing. (laughs) You you know, you start trying to meditate and then you notice that you're off doing your to-do list Mm -hmm. and worries in your mind. And it's about, Oh, come back to the breath or come back to what it is I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So it's the act of catching yourself off in what they call monkey mind and mm-hmm. then bringing it back to focus again. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. I love that. And I love what you've said on focusing on the idea of mindfulness. And I think it also helps, especially some of the challenges we see with, you know, women who are, um, constantly feeling like they have to be superhuman and burning the candle at both ends. Um, I would love to, I'd love to hear just from you personally, what do you do um, in terms of mindfulness or like when you find yourself needing a moment to pause, um, what are some, what are some habits or hacks that you do? Great question. And, you know, sometimes I'm better at this than other times. Um, I think it's a couple of things for me. One is just paying attention to my internal feeling. And if, if I'm feeling the stress level rising and it, you know, and it's kind of staying there for a couple of days, I kind of go back to what's on my list. What am I worrying about? What can I, you know, uh, lean into delegate or just stop doing, you know, mm-hmm. reconnoiter the priority list a little bit. Yes. Um, certainly mindfulness. I do have a couple apps that I like listening to. And then there's a couple activities that I do that are super mindful for me. One is sewing of all things. I kind of got into fabric arts Uh and find that when I'm doing it, I can't really get into all the other thoughts. It kind of keeps me focused. So that mountain biking is another one pickleball i'm totally one of those people who's now become because yes. <laughs> i'm so busy like I, where's the ball i gotta focus on that uh-huh. so i think 
noticing what allows you to drop into a place of focus and out of that worry mind. So that's a little common combination platter mm-hmm. um, that I find helpful. And then, you know, I'm, I'm a very social person, so I have to make sure I'm getting time with people. Um, mm-hmm. And that got really smushed in the pandemic. And I had to be really mindful about bringing it back because mm-hmm. I kind of got out of the habit. And so for a while there, I was like, ah, should I go out? Nah, but I <laughs> needed it. And so I've had to, to, find that right balance of of my human contact outside of my family. I love that. What if you knew exactly where to focus to go further, faster? Imagine having clarity on your strengths and barriers and the ability to take action and gain unstoppable momentum to deliver results and advance. Take the Beyond Barriers Momentum Metric Quiz to get a personalized report on the five C's, core categories used to measure and accelerate success. Visit gobeyondbarriers.com slash quiz to get your report today. Well, I want to shift gears a little bit um, because I remember finding really interesting something that you shared in your book of, you know, when you're talking about people are reaching their full potential, right? When they've tapped into and understand, you know, they're finding purpose and meaning in their work. Can you share or kind of give a visual of what does it look like when someone is actually fulfilling their potential? Um, and you know, how can you encourage or, or challenge others to really start thinking about doing that? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, we were all born with this amazing thing inside of us called emotions (laughs) (laughs) and our emotions are actually a really great compass. Mm -hmm. And so I think, first of all, it's just tuning in, you know, of course we all have bad days, but what's Mm -hmm. the overall tone? What's the overall trend? How are you feeling, right? Um, When you're fulfilling your potential, it feels meaningful. It feels like you're on the right path. It Mm -hmm. it feels like you're doing what you're supposed to do. That doesn't mean there's not hard days, but the the tone underneath that is, yeah, Mm -hmm. this is where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. Um, You know, we're all designed to learn and grow. We're all meant to keep achieving more. So even when you've achieved a goal, yeah, celebrate it. That's awesome. But you're mm-hmm. naturally going to notice you're going to set yourself the next goal. Like yes. we're wired to do that. That's fine. So this is what, you know, sometimes we outgrow relationships because mm-hmm. we're growing and the other person isn't. Sometimes we outgrow jobs because mm-hmm. we've grown and it's yes. it's not with mm-hmm. us anymore. We've outgrown bosses. We've outgrown careers. So part of it is that you are constantly evolving and growing. And if your mm-hmm. environment isn't matching that, that can be a little source of friction or disconnect. Mm-hmm. So pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. Um I would also say that when you're trying to get better at something, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of research that we kind of can default into what's known as mindless practice rather than intentionally getting better. Mm-hmm. So mindless practice is like you take a class and you kind of get better at it and then you just kind of stall out. We don't just keep getting better. It takes effort to get better. So if you mm-hmm. really want to change a skill or something, get a coach, Get a mentor, set stretch goals for yourself, push yourself, look at the data, um, achieve that next little milestone. But it's literally a series of milestones, being beyond your skill, Mm -hmm. getting some help, working a little harder. Oh, you did it. Okay, hang out there for a little while. Okay, now push yourself to the next level. So you really want to have a mindful or deliberate, it's called deliberate practice. It's a real Mm -hmm. strategy for 
improving yourself. With that said, can I just give us all permission, particularly women and people of color, like we're having to work so hard just to survive in this patriarchy. Yes, yes. That um, I think sometimes we take this on more than others. I love that quote that says, may you be as happy as a mediocre white man or something like that. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. It's, a, it's a quote that really resonates right now. And uh-huh. I think we take on a lot of emotional labor in, in a lot of ways. And so I would almost say, we have to be careful of not pushing ourselves too hard because we mm-hmm. carry too much. So yeah, set goals, but at the same time, you know, rest, <laughs> rest, yeah. the rest is a radical act and uh, doing sea level work is perfectly fine. You know, so mm-hmm. part of it is also um, having balance there. Yes. I love that you said that because we, you know, you do, we find that, all of these ambitious, you know, intelligent women, BIPOC professionals, they set really almost absurd kind of standards for themselves and it, it leads to burnout. And so how do you calibrate that so that you are able to, um, like you said, execute and get things done and nothing has to be completely perfect, right? Um, how do, how do you, embrace that innovator's mindset of like version one and then 2.0, 3.0, and it keeps getting better along the way. I love that you said it. And I love that you gave everybody permission. And so we're going to keep reminding them that you gave them permission. Um, I want to, before we jump into the, you know, our, our flash, you know, our flash questions, the lightning questions we like to ask, I wanted to, you know, many of the individuals that we work with, um, we also partner and keep their managers informed to help them keep, you know, have engaging conversations. And like, you know, we'll say, hey, manager, you know, the this cohort and the individual on your team has gone through the power of clarity and is better articulating their unique value proposition and what they want to be known for. And I love what you, you know, you you share tips sometimes on what managers can do to create more meaning and purpose for their employees. Can you talk a little bit about that to give some like pearls of wisdom to the, you know, the, the new managers, the, you know, growing managers of how can they help their employees in that space? Great question. One of the things that I do in all of my books is I always have a section for managers and then I have Mm -hmm. an section for executives because I think, there's, there's things that we can all do, right, to mm-hmm. make the world a better place. So for or particularly around purpose and meaningful work, managers play a very important role. Um, I think a couple things. One of the p- ways that we get meaning from work is um, aligning our own sense of purpose and meaning to what the organization or the team is doing. Mm-hmm. And so managers mm-hmm. really need to ask that question and be like, tell me more about you. What gives you a sense of purpose and meaning? Yes. What really drives you? What excites you? What kind of crushes you? Like learn about your people. Because oftentimes once you know that, you can do a better job just verbally, but sometimes also physically connecting elements in the workplace that's mm. going to help this person thrive. Right. So kind of getting to know the whole per- the whole person. Another thing is, is it's really the manager's job to look at what is the vision or mission of the organization. Oftentimes very lofty and 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 easy to get excited about. Right. 
sometimes the flow down into this day-to-day task or this project that we're working on may not be as clear. So drawing that line of sight, making sure mm-hmm. it's clear. Some ways you can do this is sell, you know, share some client success stories, mm-hmm. keep sharing the stories and the data of the good the organization is doing in the world. Cause sometimes we all lose sight of that as we're showing up and getting stuff done. Yeah. Um, I think that's super important. It can help people find pride in their work. Yes, exactly. I think um, encouraging job crafting, it's known as job crafting or job hacking, but really asking people, what do you like the best and what would you like to do less of? And all of a sudden you'll find, oh, one of your people really enjoys training others. Great. Can you make that part of their job? Somebody else really loves event planning. Awesome. Somebody else really loves data analysis. And oftentimes you can find that making just a few tweaks or even swatching, swapping job elements mm-hmm. between a couple of your people, they're just going to be happier and um, able to thrive more. So don't, you know, don't be afraid of job crafting or job hacking. And this is also something that individuals can do. Like you can identify that for yourself and take that to your manager and say, Hey, Mm -hmm. I've learned some stuff about myself. Um, And I, you know, I want to say one more thing, which is a big cornerstone to workplaces being really positive is psychological safety and inclusion. Yes. We have to continue to lean into that. Um, and do that work because if people don't feel safe, there's no way they can be bringing their best self to work. So we really have to prioritize that and really actively address violations because when we allow those violations to stand, it, it erodes credibility in the whole organization. No, absolutely. And I love what you said about really identifying, um, you know, when, when there isn't the safe space and where there are maybe some micro inequities or micro aggressive behaviors where, you know, being able to be empowered to call them out and, and avoid any of the gaslighting of, Oh no, <laughs> I'm sure they didn't mean that. And instead really focus on the impact opposed to the intent. Um, yeah. I think that's, that's super powerful. And I'm so glad you shared that. I mean, I could go on and on. But I know we have to come to a close. So I'm going to jump over to our lightning round question so that we can get to know a little bit more about you, Britt, and and really understand uh, what maybe drives you in certain areas. Um, but I know that, you know, given that you've written so many books, you've probably read so many books. Um, this might be a hard one. What book has greatly influenced you? You know, like you're right. I can't just name one because there's <laughs> so many. But what I can say is that there's authors that I really appreciate. Mm-hmm. So like Raj Sisodia has written a ton of research on conscious business mm-hmm. and creating healing organizations. And I find every book he writes is amazing. Brene Brown's research on vulnerability yes. is phenomenal. I read every word she ever writes. Yes. Um, Amy Edmondson, the person who who uh, found and discovered psychological safety. I yes. Think her, mm-hmm. her work is amazing. And Richard Davidson, he's the one that's doing a phenomenal research on the power of mindfulness. Those would be four authors that I would say all of their works have greatly shaped me. And I think your audience would enjoy checking them out. Absolutely. That was, that's actually very well-rounded. So I definitely am going to make note and share that with, with most people. I'm very familiar with their work. So I love that. Um, what is your favorite inspiring quote or saying? I have always loved Margaret Mead's and I'm going to, I'm going to make sure I get it right. But Margaret Mead said, never underestimate the power of a small group of committed people to change the world. In fact, it is the only thing that ever has. Mm, I love that. To me, that just hits on so many levels. Like 
you know, sometimes things can feel so big and overwhelming, and yet it's always just a handful of committed people that really get the ball rolling and get it started. And so, you know, we really are quite powerful. And it reminds me how powerful we are. And I love that you said that because I was reading a late um, recently book on just community and some of these large communities and people, you know, one of the definitions was like, those are ghost communities. Cause at the end of the day, there may be a hundred thousand members in this community, but it's usually only one or 2% of the people who are actually making the things happen. So um, that resonates with me so much. It, it made me think <laughs> of that book. Um, what is one word or moniker? that you would use to describe yourself? You know, I think it all comes down to, I see myself as a facilitator, mm. a facilitator of knowledge, like synthesizing brain science and to take, yes. you know, things that people can take away and use. I like to facilitate groups and organizations and people kind of becoming their best selves. So I really feel like I'm in this facilitator role where I'm not doing it all by myself, but I'm, I'm, I'm helping it happen. Mm, I love it. I love it. Now, here's one. What is one change, a habit, a behavior, an action that you implemented that made your life better? You know, I finally realized it was when I was writing books and I realized that if I sat down to write a book, it became incredibly dry and boring. But if I thought about how to teach it to people and um, Mm. create a PowerPoint presentation, all of a sudden I was thinking about, okay, where's the audience and what aha moment do they need to have? And what, what would be the journey that would get them there? And so I've started using PowerPoint for all of my thinking. It's just Mm. become this awesome whiteboarding tool that I can tag images in, I can put URLs in, I can type words, and then I can reorder the slides. Um, It really has now become a tool I use for all of my best thinking and organizing when I'm I'm really noodling on something or even planning a project. I even use it for project planning. Oh my God, Britt, I think you just unlocked me. I was like, okay, no more Google Docs. I'm just going to do slides. I mean, because because there's so much, sometimes like you said, you're writing and then you you kind of get into this consciousness of writing and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, this paragraph needs to go here or it would flow much better. I'm Okay, I'm stealing this this uh, hack that you just introduced um, and you're going to make my life better. I'll even grab like a screenshot and drag it over. Like you can just capture uh-huh. so many things and then it yeah. just becomes this huge kind of, board that you can uh, play with in a lot of ways. So yeah, give it a try. I love it. I love it. I'm going to. And here's my favorite. Finally, I mean, you speak so much, you jump on all these stages and you talk to people about neuroscience, brain science. What is the power song that you would want playing the next time you walk out onto stage? (laughs) I've only ever had this happen a couple of times. It doesn't happen all that often that people play a song, but I love this girl is on fire. Yes. (laughs) It pumps me up. (laughs) <laughs> it pumps me up. I'm a redhead, so it kind of works, but uh, I, I like that one. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, Britt, it has been amazing uh, just picking your brain and, and learning from you in this you know, short um, podcast. But I know that our audience is going to really be yearning for more. So can you share a little bit about how individuals can find your books, get your books, um, You know, get in contact with you? What's the best way? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn. So follow me on LinkedIn. We're always posting there what I'm doing and it links to my websites. My author speaker website where you'll find my books is my name, Britandriata.com. 
And then my company where we do brain-based training. So if you're mm-hmm. in an organization and you want to think about that, it's called Brain Aware Training. So those are those two places plus LinkedIn. You'll see everything that I'm up to and we link to where you can buy my books and all of that stuff. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. And not to forget, you have several LinkedIn learning courses that people, um, I've, I think I've probably taken a few of them a couple of times, twice. Um, there's always something really great to learn from there. So again, thank you so much for constantly and being so committed to transferring knowledge. I think that's really what helps unlock people. And um, I appreciate all of your work and uh, just will be honored to continue to stay connected and follow you and just keep learning. Fantastic. Well, it's so lovely to connect with you as well and your, your audience. I would love to get to know them more. And I think the work that you're doing is super, super important in the world. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Beyond Barriers podcast. There are thousands of podcasts out there, and we are so grateful that you've chosen to listen to ours. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and tell a friend, or share what you've learned on LinkedIn and tag us. We love hearing from our audience. Visit us at gobeyondbarriers.com, where you can subscribe and find show notes, links, and the best way to connect with our guests.